Krista Peterson, the Experian Information S- Solutions. Mr. Shammy, when you are ready. I believe I told the clerk already I'm going to reserve three minutes for rebuttal, Your Honors. <clears throat> May it please the court, my name is David Shammy and I represent the appellant Krista Peterson in this matter. This appeal stems from the district court's decision to grant summary judgment, um, and we've limited our appeal to the issue of damages. Um, The district court found, and and according to the order, relied heavily on, appears to have relied heavily on, um, excluding um, competent testimony and evidence regarding damages, relying solely on a response to a request for admission, which we believe the court either too narrowly um, construed the question and answer, um, and it appears also disregarded other responses to both RFAs, interrogatories, and depositions, which if you read the request for admissions the way plaintiff or the appellant reads them, that information and that testimony is consistent um, with the plaintiff's um, testimony um, and even with the RFA that uh, the district court um, cited to. Well, l- let me just start by asking you this. Uh, of course, we got two of these coming up. You're going to have another one in a few minutes. But um, as far as Ms. Peterson's case is concerned, are you limiting your damages analysis to the emotional distress harm? Are you, In other words, are you alleging that she actually suffered some financial loss as a result of... of of the credit report? We do allege that that the information, the inaccurate information was sent to, and there's evidence in the record that the information was sent to uh, Chase as part of a credit application. Um, and I think ultimately, Ms. Peterson is not qualified to testify as to why Chase denied her credit. But I think the standard here is whether or not, and we all agree that Ms. Peterson had filed a bankruptcy, and, and that would be likely a factor in a credit determination. But it doesn't have, the fact that the inaccurate information was reporting, it doesn't have to be the sole factor. It just has to be a substantial factor in determining whether or not to ap- approve someone for credit. Well, then, well the, I guess that, and that leads to the question I have then is, what do you have to, what do you have to show and how can you show that it was a substantial factor when even she testified she thought it was the bankruptcy, which is what? Well, we have an expert who's, who's testified and provided a report that explains that once somebody files for bankruptcy, they, get, they are graded on a different scorecard. There's a bankruptcy scorecard. And our expert says when you report a bankruptcy, what creditors expect to see is no more debt. When we make it, when a creditor makes a determination about whether to extend future credit, they're looking at a consumer's credit report, understanding that and expecting to see debts discharged in bankruptcy. But when you have a bankruptcy and you have debt that remains, and, and what's interesting here is the debt doesn't only remain, but it shows an existing past due balance. It also shows a monthly payment obligation, which means this consumer has not only 
discharge her debt in bankruptcy, but also has this negative debt that continues beyond the bankruptcy. Whether or not, um, whether or not the denial of credit that the, the reporting was a, a substantial factor or not is typically a question for the jury, as long as we can produce competent evidence. And I believe we have provided competent evidence of a credit denial, of a harmful of a harmful credit reporting issue that would have been considered and would have been a substantial factor. Mr. Hendricks testified, and he doesn't say whether or not the denial, in fact, was the sole cause, but he says it's a double whammy. You have a bankruptcy, and that's common sense. You have a bankruptcy, and now you have this ongoing negative reporting. But nobody's ever really uh, produced any evidence of, of what was the decision-making process, right? And so at the end of the day, when we usually look for substantial evidence, when we're looking at something that's a substantial factor, we look for substantial evidence, and we look for substantial evidence. We look for something from which one could draw a reasonable inference uh, that it was, in fact, considered. And what we have here is surmise by an expert who admittedly is familiar with the process, familiar with how uh, credit companies operate and what they ordinarily do, but you didn't produce like any of Chase's um, you know, internal uh, documentation, any of their records, any of the processes of how they score. And I, I get where that's hard to come by, but, but you could have, in theory, you know, subpoenaed the person who made that, uh, that determination and said, what happened? And instead, what we've got standing in the record as the only actual evidence right, is the statement of your client that, well, it's the bankruptcy or something, you know? We, we have, well, we did subpoena Chase. And of course, Chase doesn't have the denial letter anymore. And in, if anyone has ever applied for credit, we, we all have, when they deny you, they don't say, here's why you were denied. They say, well, here are some of the reasons why you were denied. Um, and that, that document, of course, we tried to get it from Chase, and they don't have it. And so I'm not hanging my hat on the They damages. must have a rubric someplace, right? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> tr trying to get a creditor to tell you why they denied credit specifically, it it's impossible. I, I got it. I mean, I used to practice law. I mean, it's been like 100 years ago, but I used to do that. But, but, <laughs> but more importantly, and I would acknowledge that we are, we are more importantly um, relying on the testimony um, by Miss... By Ms. Peterson about the emotional harm, and and, and so I, I want to turn our attention to the Eighth Circuit's um, essentially the Eighth Circuit standard for um, whether or not you can um, bring a case to a jury on emotional distress. And the Eighth Circuit and Taylor said, "Look, you can establish uh, damages solely by plaintiff's own testimony, so long as that testimony identifies and describes the kind of severe emotional distress that warrants damages." And, and more importantly, the Eighth Circuit said in that same year in, Brent, in Bennett uh, v. Riceland Foods that competent evidence of gen, genuine emotional distress um, should be submitted to the jury, even if it is scant. We don't have scant testimony or scant evidence of emotional distress in this case. We have a consumer or a, a plaintiff who said, listen, I had legitimate emotional distress, I had anxiety, I had pre-existing issues, I was being treated for those issues prior to the bankruptcy, prior to the credit reporting issue. I, I was already seeing a therapist. This caused me severe emotional distress, such, such that when I went to my regular appointments, it was a point of contention. It was something that I brought up to my therapist. It was something that was so stressful to me that my therapist 
increased my anti-anxiety medication, increased my, my uh, sleeplessness medication to help her go to sleep. I mean, this is something that, that she testified to. It's not simply the type of damages that we saw in Taylor, which the Eighth Circuit said, well, look, you've had the inaccuracy, you, you, you resolved it in five to 10 minutes from the time you found out about the inaccuracy to the time you uh, resolved it. You had a five to 10 minute uh, moment of legitimate distress, but it was very short lived and we're not gonna allow that to proceed. Well, we don't have that here. We don't, but we do have this rule 36 admission and then we have the testimony that contradicts it. And of course, you know, appellate courts are like big on rules and we've always had one of them rules that says that when you find yourself in a position where you've made a rule 36 admission that technically you're supposed to, you know, uh, make some kind of a filing to set aside the admission. You know, what we've got is the testimony that comes in later that, that like under Taylor, we say that, that that kind of testimony is enough. You can present that testimony, drag in a person who say, I observed it, and that's, that's enough, uh, certainly to create a jury question. Uh, what should we make of the fact that there was never a filing to withdraw the Rule 36 admission? Your Honor, I read the Rule 36 admission, and I don't believe that it's con inconsistent with her testimony. If you read the the question, it says, admit that plaintiff has not met with or been examined by any mental health professional as a result of the events that form the basis of this litigation. Ms. Peterson testified she had already been seeing the therapist. She did not seek out therapy as a result of this reporting. That's not inconsistent. She, if she, she couldn't withdraw that admission because it is true. You don't, she didn't seek out the therapy, but she was already seeing a therapist. And as part of the normal sessions, this issue was a real thing for her that she raised. It caused the increase of medication, but not any increased cost. And she's not seeking reimbursement for her medical treatments because she was going there anyway. She's not seeking uh, uh, reimbursement for the medications because she was already being medicated. So. I don't see the, and if we look at the interrogatory responses, which were served under oath at the same time as the RFAs, interrogatory number 13, which is uh, docket 107-3, uh, plaintiff answers the, the question of, you know, describe all humiliation, mental or emotional distress, by saying plaintiff suffered immense stress and anxiety as a result of defendant's conduct. Defendant's conduct exacerbated pre-existing anxiety and depression. That was served with, at the same time as the responses to the RFAs. That is absolutely consistent with the RFA, as she read it, as she had intended to admit um, and, and respond to that RFA, and then her deposition testimony is consistent. I didn't mean to lead you down this long rabbit hole. You, you may, you've answered my question, thank you. Okay, and so, um, to the extent that Experian in their opposition raises a whole slew of other issues um, that we don't believe are appropriate for consideration um, at this court because we haven't appealed uh, the district court's decision on willfulness, although we address it in our op opposition or in our reply brief. Um, to the extent the court wants to ask questions about that, I can either deal with it now or I can deal with it on, uh, during my, uh, my reply. So I'm going to reserve the remaining four minutes. So. You may. Thank you. Mr. Wears.
Good morning, Your Honors. Uh, Adam Weirs, on behalf of the appellee Experian. Um, so Mrs. Ms. Peterson's case presents, uh, in my view, a situation where Experian did everything exactly right, pursuant to policies that were designed to maximize accuracy and to comply with a federal court injunction. The offending trade line from South Point Federal Credit Union was on Ms. Peterson's file for a matter of mere months, appearing alongside a parade of other major derogatory accounts. That account, which was current at the time she filed bankruptcy, was updated automatically by Experian without any notice from anyone, not from Ms. Peterson herself, not from South Point. That is precisely how the system is designed to work. Plaintiff claims that she was upset about this one minor derogatory reporting alongside a sea of major derogatories. But she was apparently not upset enough to let Experian know, keeping her disappointment to herself and then filing a lawsuit after the passage of nearly half a year and five months after it had been automatically updated. Because the system worked exactly as designed, Ms. Peterson unsurprisingly cannot muster any evidence of damage. Experience systems are designed to be consumer friendly. And that's exactly how things played out in this case. The judgment of the district court was correct and it should be affirmed for three separate reasons. First, the undisputed record, record evidence in this case is that the procedures that Experian employed were designed to track and abide by a federal court injunction. Abiding well, excuse by a me, court? I thought you, uh, I, there seems to be a lot of confusion about this issue. The appellant filed a 20HA letter citing all these Ninth Circuit cases, mainly Ninth Circuit cases, about the white injunction and saying it doesn't apply in these cases. And I thought you sent, filed a response saying you're not relying on the white injunction. Uh, no, we did not file a response saying that. The Ninth Circuit opinions, which were one page unpublished, um, non-precedential orders on a motion to dismiss, said they, the, the panel there couldn't determine from the pleading that Experian had complied with white. Here, we have a complete record. Experian, uh, Experian's procedures were designed to comply with white, and indeed they did. And it cannot be said to be negligent behavior to put in place procedures that are designed to comply with a court order. So, so, so just, just to be clear, uh, um, although the appellant says they're only... Uh, they're only appealing the damage determination, which is the primary reason the district court dismissed the case. You want us to affirm on alternative grounds that as a matter of law, you follow the white injunction and following the white injunction uh, eliminates any claim for negligence. So we want you to affirm for whatever reason you decide to affirm. But there are three reasons that are clearly you should affirm. The first is even if you think the white procedures aren't reasonable, it nevertheless can't be negligent 
for Experian to follow a court order. That's reason one. And the evidence is undisputed in this case that Experian's procedures that it used were designed to follow a court order. All right. Now I want to talk, just just tease this out just a tiny, tiny bit. It seems to me that uh, what I'm hearing you argue is not uh, a preclusion argument. There's no, no claim that's been precluded, no issue that's been precluded as a result of this. What I'm hearing is, as a matter of law, it is not negligence to design a system consistent with a court order and then apply it nationally. Correct. When that when that court order requires you to do precisely that, and that you're really arguing just that as a that no reasonable juror could find the establishment of such a process unreasonable. Right. It's not negligent. It's not negligent to do what a court told you to do. And there's and the undisputed and unrebutted evidence in this case. Uh, and I encourage you to look at the declaration from Ms. Cave and her expert report. These systems that Experian employed here were specifically designed to comply with that court order. Now, we also think the court order itself is reasonable. We think the procedures are reasonable. That's a third reason you could affirm. Has has any court said what you are asking us to say, which is that as a matter of law, a system that's designed in compliance with the white injunction uh, eliminates any claim for negligence? No. These are the very first. the, The Peterson case was one of the very first filed. There's now a whole laundry list of them. Um, but the district courts, and, and I understand they're not presidential, uh, without exception have found that your position is not tenable. Well, the district courts have found... Or either didn't reach them or found them untenable. The district court decisions, there's only been one on summary judgment, which is in the Northern District of Georgia, which was applying a sort of different standard. Um, the others were all on motions to dismiss. Mm-hmm. And then even in those, there were a few on summary judgment, Peterson, which we're here for, and Beers, which we just submitted as supplemental authority, also in the District of Minnesota, ruled for us on damages, but then affirmed on willfulness for us, saying, well, clearly it can't be willful when you're trying, when you're working to comply with a federal court order. That's true, but it also can't be negligent. <coughs> um, so here we have Judge Doty, who did look at it and said, yeah, they were complying with White. Their procedures were designed to comply with white. They can't be willful. He then said, I don't need to reach the next question, which is, is it negligent? Because he found no damages. Well, but, I, I, I guess I'm curious. I'm looking at the white injunction here. I think it's July of 2008. No one has raised this. So all the, see, what you're saying is the credit reporting agencies have designed their systems in compliance with white. We'll assume that's true. And in up until a year or so ago, in those 12 to 13-year interval, no one's challenged this system. It, it's an incredibly effective system. So Ms. Peterson's counsel has found a, a little niche. There are exceptions to White. White says it's not going to be perfect. White admits this will not be perfect. Perfection's not possible. So it creates reasonable assumptions. One reasonable assumption is if an account's current at the time of filing and the furnisher does not tell us that it's included in bankruptcy, when those two things are true, then you should not turn a good account into a bad account. Let's give the consumer time because they might be, they might have some side deal with the furnisher where they're going to try to keep this account. 
That's precisely what happened with Ms. Peterson. And then Experian doesn't just walk away. Experian continues monitoring. And here, it has a process called the look-back scrub. Again, I'd encourage you to look at Ms. Cave's declaration in her expert report. The look-back scrub was also designed to comply with white. Accounts that are less than 120 days delinquent are considered minor derogatories. A lot of scoring models don't treat them as derogatory at all. Similarly, the white injunction itself calls those accounts only minor derogatories. So what Experian did is, if an account was current and not scrubbed, great, it doesn't get scrubbed. And by scrubbed, I mean updated to discharge in bankruptcy. We then watch it. We, we watch that account. Once it goes into a major derogatory status, 30, 60, 90, 120, it gets updated automatically. So what Ms. Peterson had here was she was in that interval, 30, 60, 90. It's a minor derogatory. It's not even, most scoring models wouldn't even treat it derogatory at all. Not to mention her credit report had 15 discharge and bankruptcy accounts on it. So the scrub itself is reasonable and complying with it is reasonable. And then the look back scrub, there is no evidence in the record here that the look back scrub that Experian applied was anything other than a good faith attempt to follow white and the purposes of white. And it worked beautifully. It, it frankly worked beautifully. I mean, this plaintiff didn't have to do anything. It updated automatically. In the meantime, she had 30, 60, 90. That's not a terribly derogatory thing, especially in the, in fact, most scoring models, it's not derogatory at all, but it's certainly less derogatory than discharge and bankruptcy. So, point one, uh, it can't be negligent. We're, we're following a court order. The unrebutted evidence is that's precisely what we were trying to do. Um, point two is no damages. The Chase account, there's clearly no evidence substantiating that denial. In fact, she applied for three credit cards at the same time and was denied for all three. The other two were based on other bureau reports. Then, after Experian automatically updated, she applied to Chase again, still denied. So clearly that denial, not only did she not have evidence that it was caused by a 60-day late South Point account, it is clearly not, because after it was updated, she was still denied. Emotional distress. Taylor sets forth the standard. It adopts the position of the Seventh Circuit in Ruffins-Tompkins, Sarver and Wants. Sarver says, because emotional distress is so easy to manufacture, we're going to use a strict standard. You have to provide some actual evidence. Well, here we served RFAs. Council read you one of them. Request 21. Admit plaintiff has not met with or been examined by any medical professional to treat or diagnose any condition caused by the events that form the basis of this litigation. Admit. She never moved to rescind, alter, modify. She gave a deposition, and there her testimony was largely consistent. She talked about the bankruptcy itself was stressful. She says she mentioned Experian, but didn't say anything about 
any increased medications. Uh, and then suddenly, at summary judgment, we get an affidavit that says medications. Well, it, it's contradicting her earlier RFA, and which is clearly not allowed in the circuit or any circuit, as far as I'm aware. Um, what about the interrogatory answer your opposing counsel quoted from? The inter interrogatory answer doesn't doesn't get there. It's just conclusory platitudes. Uh, there's there's nothing of any substance there other than, you know, I was upset when I saw this. Um, and that's just not enough. The, 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 the Eighth Circuit, in adopting the Seventh Circuit's position, it's a strict standard. You have to have real, genuine injury. Um, you can't just be upset. Life is upsetting sometimes. It has to be real, genuine uh, injury. And I think if you read Taylor carefully and read the cases that Taylor relies on, I think you can get a sense of what is required. First of all, they rely on the Seventh Circuit for the standard, but then they cite a couple cases where the evidence was enough. Cortez in the Third Circuit. There, the woman was labeled a terrorist. She sent in four disputes and could not get the problem fixed. She had sleep, diagnosed sleeplessness, requiring medication, weight loss, and other third-party testimony. Yes, that's enough. Um, Stevenson in the Fifth Circuit sends in two disputes. The process drags out for years, or for months rather, six months. He has to go explain things because he's trying to get a loan to some bank officers. Yes, that's distressful. In fact, I would encourage your honors to look at the cases plaintiff cites. Any case, virtually, where a court has said the emotional distress evidence on its own is enough, includes the plaintiff making a dispute. Cortez, there were four. Stevenson, two. Lewelson, there was a dispute. Barton, Rebel, Graham, Loesch, Meyer, Etta, essentially every single one. If it's distressing, you do something about it. Uh, so that's pretty clear. I, I, Judge Doty was right on the nose uh, with the damages point. Finally, we believe the record evidence in this case establishes the procedures were reasonable. It is reasonable as White, after years of litigation determined, it was reasonable to allow consumers to try to keep a current debt through bankruptcy. That's a reasonable procedure. That's what we did. It's certainly not willful. Even though plaintiff claims that he's not uh, challenging willfulness, it's certainly an important issue as well. Um, I see my time is running up, Your Honors. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for my rebuttal time. Um, I want to address just a few tail end things that uh, counsel said about damages. I, I want to make a point that Ms. Peterson did do something. She sued. Um, she, she sued six months or so um, after she uh, learned of the, the uh, inaccurate credit report. Um, 
Mr. Weir's talked about she was denied credit by Chase subsequent. Well, let's be honest, Chase has different credit cards. There's nothing in the record uh, that Experian can rely on to help, un help the court understand, this panel understand whether this is a different type of credit card, different requirements, different requests, which is why we don't raise it. Um, and the expert that they rely on is their, um, basically their everyday corporate representative, uh, Kimberly Cave. She's been working for Experian for 20 plus years. Um, all of the training and everything she knows about credit reporting came from Experian itself. So I, I'd say that that's a credibility determination as to whether Ms. Cave is an actual expert. Um, and, and what Experian really seems to be asking this court to do is to offer them strict immunity. We, ag we agree that the FCRA is not a strict liability statute, but there's also no such thing as strict immunity. You don't get strict immunity. You don't get to follow a court order that by the way, this is a settlement agreement that was drafted in large part by experienced lawyers. They drafted it and ultimately Judge Carter, the Central District of California, signed it. So it's an order in effect, but the language was drafted in large part by Experian. And Judge Carter added something to that order. It was section 5.6. He said, absent a fundamental change in circumstances. So he intended, even though he acknowledged that it was highly unusual to try to apply this settlement to future people who are not members of the class. He put in section 5.6 and he says, look, I normally can't do this. He acknowledged it wouldn't have binding effect or didn't think it could have binding effect on future litigants. But he said, but, but even if he tried to, he understood that, look, this is in 2008. He said, absent a fundamental change in circumstances, Experian has ignored the possibility of a change in circumstances. They have ignored the fact that the other two credit reporting agencies have stricter policies and procedures and implemented white in a different way. They've ignored it. We identify that for the court in this brief. Um, and in fact, they changed those policies and procedures in 2021 because of our lawsuits. So we've made their procedures better. There should be less lawsuits moving forward because of Ms. Peterson and people like Ms. Peterson holding the credit reporting agencies responsible for their conduct. Um, there is another case out of the Northern District of Illinois called Laura, Tiffany Laura v. Experian, where Experian was denied um, summary judgment. So they're not all, uh, besides the Benjamin case out of Georgia, the Laura case out of the Northern District of Illinois denied summary judgment on their reasonable procedures claim as well, um, in addition to numerous courts uh, on motions to dismiss. Um, the Another thing that's important here is that there are pending cases against Experian. Northern District of Illinois, a case called uh, Stagger v. Experian. Uh, Judge Cole, uh, in a discovery matter, uh, issued an order where he found that Experian's uh, discovery practices amounted to bad faith because they were withholding slew of documents, emails, policies and procedures, scrub documents from plaintiff despite our requesting of those documents which is why Judge Doty didn't have the benefit of what did Experian know when they created this policy? What were they withholding? So for the willfulness claim, we don't have it in the record. But moving forward, I'd ask the court to consider only the damages. That's the only thing that's at issue. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much for your briefing and arguments. It's been very helpful to the court. The court will take the case under advisement.